Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep, forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 106 of History of the Marine Corps, Defense of the Philippines, Part 2. This episode continues our discussion in the Philippines. Most of the 4th Marines were positioned on Corregidor, a small, tadpole-shaped island residing in the mouth of Manila Bay. Japan's domination of air and sea cut off food and supplies to the peninsula's defenders. By April 1942, many troops lost as much as a third of their body weight. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. After the first air raid on Ilongapo, the Marines were on alert and started preparing for another wave. Japan learned a valuable lesson during its initial attack. The defensive weapons used by the Marines had a limited range. On December 13th, the enemy aircraft returned with this knowledge in mind. The 27 Japanese bombers flew at a higher altitude to compensate for the island's defenses. As the enemy approached, air raid sirens echoed throughout the base. This advance warning helped Americans take cover. However, many Filipinos ignored the alert. A large group of locals stood under a tree and watched the battle. A Japanese plane dropped a bomb right in the middle of the group, killing 22 and wounding another 25. Naval installations were not hit during this raid. PFC Neil P. Iovino became the first Marine casualty from the 4th Marines. He was close enough to a bomb that shrapnel hit him in the abdomen. Fortunately, his weapon was between the blast and his body. The fragment shattered his gunstock, preventing a more serious injury. Two other Marines were injured in this raid as well. That night, Marines from 2-4 were listening to Radio Tokyo's broadcast when they heard that the 4th Marines were annihilated by Japan's assault. Obviously this wasn't true, but they had a good laugh about the announcement. The following six days were relatively quiet, at least from an attack perspective. Air raid sirens were constantly going off, but Japan didn't attack again until the 19th. U.S. forces used this opportunity to prepare for Japan's return. The 2nd Battalion, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Anderson, moved five miles outside of the base and set up on the hills of Manila Road. Men from the 2nd Battalion were sent to Makanaya Beach to set up defensive positions. 
As Marines were digging fighting holes and building berms, Anderson walked around and motivated the Marines by saying, quote, that's okay, man. They've got nothing bigger than eight-inch shells to throw at us, unquote. The 2nd Battalion also coordinated with the Philippine Army's 31st Division, and they set up roadblocks on Manila Road near Mount Panagur in the Zambales Mountains. When Japanese aircraft arrived again on the 19th, they posed very little threat. Their aim was atrocious, and most of their bombs and ammunition hit the bay. During our last episode, we briefly touched on the two combat teams from Japan's 2nd Formosa Regiment of the 48th Division that landed on Luzon. The strong Japanese force was able to come on shore unopposed, and they were able to secure southern Luzon in two days. They landed in two locations in the north and attacked Marines on two fronts. Several hundred Leathernecks preparing to reinforce the 4th Marines were caught in the middle. A Japanese cruiser off the China coast captured the USS President Harrison while evacuating Marines still in Peking and Tientsin. Enemy forces in Luzon slowly advanced towards Manila. As Japanese troops made their way to the capital, Admiral Hart and General MacArthur discussed their plan on how they would deploy the 4th Marines. On December 20th, MacArthur formally asked that the, quote, powerful veteran 4th Marines, unquote, be assigned to his command. After Admiral Hart received orders from the Navy to place all naval personnel, munitions, and equipment at the disposal of USAFE, he sent the commanding officer of the 4th Marines, Colonel Howard, to report to MacArthur. Once Howard arrived, he was ordered to Corregidor and took over the beach defenses. I'll post a map on our social media pages, but Corregidor is the primary defense of Manila Bay, and it resides in the mouth of this waterway. There were three other islands near Corregidor, and each was heavily fortified. Before World War II, these were formidable defenses. They are known as the Gibraltar of the Far East and are the primary defenses for Manila. With the advancement of aircraft, they were less intimidating. In addition to these vulnerabilities from air attacks, the forts on Corregidor faced another threat. The Bataan Peninsula overlooked this island, and Japan would use this as the way to Corregidor. This vulnerability wasn't lost on Colonel Howard. He reconned the Bataan Peninsula earlier, and he suggested that his regiment set up defenses on the beaches. However, MacArthur's chief of staff, Major General R.K. Sutherland, turned a deaf ear to Howard's suggestion, and the 4th Marines were sent to Corregidor instead. As Japanese troops headed south towards the capital, they quickly overwhelmed Philippine and American defenses. Although this landing was anticipated by U.S. forces, the combined protection from U.S. air, submarine, and ground troops could not stop the amphibious landing. The Philippine scouts of the 26th Cavalry weren't adequately trained, and Japan instantly exploited their experience. As the Japanese force advanced towards Manila, the last major assault element landed 60 miles away at Lamon Bay on the 24th. The progress of Japan's 16th Division was similar to their 14th Army as they traveled south from Luzon. Philippine and American troops were overwhelmed by Japanese forces, and the enemy continued to advance towards the capital. 
MacArthur understood the fate of the situation. It seemed certain that Japanese forces would overrun defensive positions. So he decided to withdraw all U.S. and Philippine troops to Bataan and use the peninsula as a final stand. When we hear about the Philippines and Bataan during World War II, we typically hear stories about the U.S. Army. And there's a good reason for this. Yusefi was commanded by General Douglas MacArthur, an army general, and most U.S. forces on the ground were soldiers. However, the 4th Marines played a significant role in the peninsula's defense. The Marines were included in the Joint Defense Plan for a reason. Admiral Hart believed that due to the experience of the officers and NCOs of the 4th Marines, they were the strongest infantry regiment in the Philippines. Once MacArthur declared Manila an open city, meaning it had abandoned all defensive efforts, U.S. troops headed towards Bataan. Bataan was considered the best stronghold in defense of Luzon. As long as the peninsula and the fortified islands were held, enemy forces couldn't use the harbor and gain access to Manila from the sea. Colonel Howard understood this, which is why he suggested that the 4th Marines defend the peninsula's beaches. His recommendation was denied because the army was supposed to receive additional troops. Reinforcements were on their way to the Philippines from the United States. With a trained Philippine army, and keyword here is trained, he anticipated that he could handle a sizable amphibious landing by Japan and repulse their attack. Instead of focusing on stopping the assault, the withdrawal plan called for the United States and Philippine forces to hold the enemy's advancement as long as possible until all troops reached Bataan. Major General Jonathan Wainwright was the senior field commander of the North Luzon Force. This unit consisted of three Filipino Reserve Divisions and the 26th Cavalry Regiment. The withdrawal plan called for his North Luzon Force to fight multiple battles meant to delay the enemy advancement and allow the South Luzon Force, under Major General George M. Parker Jr., to reach Bataan. Once Parker's forces were in position, Wainwright would pull back to Bataan, and the North and South Luzon forces would fight as one. The time gained while delaying the enemy would also be used to increase the supplies located in scattered dump sites throughout Bataan. Food, ammunition, weapons, and equipment would be resupplied to help with the upcoming battle. On New Year's Day, 1942, the 4th Marine Regiment was reinforced with the 1st Separate Battalion. This was a special anti-aircraft unit stationed at Marine Barracks Cavite. They became the 3rd Battalion 4th Marines, and the total Marine strength on Corregidor was 66 officers and 1,364 enlisted. The 4th also absorbed survivors from other units. After defenses were set up on the beach, Howard was given one final order. He was instructed to destroy the Alongapo Naval Station when he pulled out. As more and more troops continued to pull back to Bataan, the Marines were left in a vulnerable position. The Philippine Army's 31st Division pulled back and left the Marines' north flank wide open. The U.S. Army's coastal defenses also retreated and left Marines open to an attack from the sea. The Marines were in the open, and with little time to spare, Howard commenced the destruction of the Alongapo Naval Station. This responsibility was left in the hands of Captain Francis H. Williams. 
He managed to improvise charges from 300-pound mines. Quote, Williams set out with his demolition gang to do a good job of erasing the naval station from the face of the globe. Unquote. William and his Marines sank the old cruiser Rochester and blew up or burnt everything of value except the barracks. But this building wouldn't last for much longer. The local population started to burn their houses and the fire consumed the barracks. Marines loaded the last of their supplies and left at night. On Christmas Day, a Marine demolition team from the 1st Separate Battalion blew up or used all remaining ammunition stocks and they destroyed a damaged submarine in Cavite. They were the last of the Marines to leave and joined the remaining forces. Marines have always done more with less. Improvise, adapt, and overcome. That phrase is used so often that it could be considered a second motto. This was the situation on Corregidor and the other islands that guarded Manila Bay. Each defensive position was outfitted with weapons used during World War I. They had 14 and 12-inch guns positioned in great locations and could be used to repel an amphibious assault. However, the defensive strategy for the island was established during World War I, and aircraft weren't a threat during this war. The coastal defense strategy didn't account for air power. As the guns were placed in position, other Marines dug fighting holes to hide from aerial attacks. Corregidor is a relatively small island. It's three and a half miles long and about a mile and a half wide at its peak. The U.S. military relied more on logic than creativity when naming the geographical layers of the island. The widest part of the island is called Topside. There are 500-foot cliffs that drop directly into a narrow beach line, and most of the coastal defenses are located here. East of this location is Middleside. It housed several other batteries and other permanent structures. Now with Topside and Middleside out of the way, I'm sure you can guess what the name of the lower part of the island is. Bottomside was the low ground in the neck connecting the island's tail and head. It contained the dock in Malinta Hill, which was east of San Jose. This hill had an extensive tunnel system and was the central hub for Luzon's defenses. General MacArthur, Rockwell, and Major General George Moore positioned their headquarters here. There is also an airstrip located in this sector. I'll post the number of guns on this episode's page in our social media site so you can have a better idea of what they were fighting with. The few anti-aircraft defenses Marines had at their disposal were 17 searchlights, 43-inch guns, and 48 50 caliber machine guns. The 1st Separate Battalion brought in a few 50 cals and four 3-inch guns from Cavite, but their responsibility had changed and their primary role was to serve as infantry. The Marines had enough rations to supply 2,000 men for six months. They also had 10 units of fire for all weapons and two-year supply of summer khakis. Resources also included medicine and medical equipment to outfit a 100-bed hospital. Many Marines slept in the surrounding jungles, and they frequently changed locations to avoid being targeted. Quote, they slept on the ground near a foxhole or some convenient ditch into which they could roll in the event of an air attack, unquote. As Colonel Howard reported to General Moore, 
Marines in the Middleside Barracks were confused to hear air raid sirens go off shortly before noon. Corregidor was never bombed, so many who heard the siren blew it off. But their lackadaisical attitude quickly changed. Lieutenant Colonel R.F. Jenkins Jr. from the 1st Battalion described that day, quote, All hell broke loose. There we were, the whole regiment flat on our bellies on the lower deck of Middleside Barracks, unquote. At 11.54, 40 Japanese bombers and 19 fighters flew in from the 5th Air Group, and they began their attack. For an hour, the Japanese aircraft dropped 200 and 500-pound bombs from 18,000 feet, and they targeted anti-aircraft batteries and other defensive positions. When they left to resupply, the Japanese Navy bombers from the 11th Air Fleet took their place. This attack lasted for another hour. The United States Far East Air Force never took to the air and confronted Japanese planes. They didn't have many fighters for the mission, and they were saving the few they did have for reconnaissance. The primary defense of Corregidor was the Marines. Their weapons caused an impressive amount of damage. Thirteen medium bombers were taken out by the 3-inch anti-aircraft guns. Four of the dive bombers were destroyed by the 50 caliber machine guns. But despite the response from Corregidor's defenses, Japan was able to cause significant damage during its attack. Almost all of the barracks and headquarter buildings were destroyed, and about half of the other structures on the island received extensive damage. Black smoke from the fires and destruction loomed over the island, and spectators from Bataan and the surrounding islands didn't know the fate of the 4th. There was a detail on Bataan responsible for supplying the Marines on Corregidor, and they wondered if they should even make the trip out or if it was a lost cause. As the dust settled from the attack, the Marines on Corregidor emerged and suffered surprisingly few casualties. Devil Dogs had one killed and four wounded from the attack. The rest of the island wasn't so fortunate. Out of all the island's defenders, there were about a hundred casualties. One of the lessons learned about this attack was that the bombs used by Japan didn't have the penetrating power to pierce the concrete floors of the barracks. The building was destroyed, but the destruction was caused more by the shaking as opposed to the explosions. This observation resulted in many setting up camps in the island's tunnel complex for the duration of the battle. After the attack, Colonel Howard immediately positioned Marines and defense sectors on the beach and they were in position before nightfall. The CO for the 1st Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Curtis T. Beecher, took his 20 officers and 367 enlisted to a possible Japanese landing site in the east sector, and he set up defenses there. Lieutenant Colonel Adams moved his 3rd Battalion of 20 officers and 490 enlisted to the beaches of Bottomside and most of Middleside. Lieutenant Colonel Herman R. Anderson's 2nd Battalion, made up of 18 officers and 324 enlisted, covered the remaining shoreline. Major Stuart King commanded a reserve force, which also made up the headquarters and service company, and it consisted of 8 officers and 183 enlisted. They were positioned on the southern shore. Marines worked tirelessly digging in, placing barbed wire, setting up their mortars and machine guns, and preparing for a fierce amphibious landing. 
but they would wait for months until Japan launched the significant attack on Corregidor. The original Japanese operation plan for Luzon thought it would be over by the end of January, but simultaneous Japanese operations in Mindanao and Jolo, located in the far south of the Philippines, cut Japanese troops short. General Masaharu Homa realized that his offensive operations were insufficient to fight on two fronts. His resources were cut further on January 2nd, when he received orders to withdraw the 48th Division and the 5th Air Group to Java and reinforce Japanese troops there. The reorganization of enemy forces gave the United States time to prepare, and MacArthur re-established his defensive line. On the 7th, U.S. forces reorganized into two corps and a rear area service command. Wainwright was given the 1st Philippine Corps and held the Western Front. The 2nd Philippine Corps was assigned to Parker, who was responsible for defending the Manila Bay side of Bataan. If we only compare the number of troops, the United States had the upper hand. However, numbers aren't always the best indicator of who will win a battle. The United States and Philippine forces had many variables playing against them. Japan's air and naval superiority gave them access to quicker and far more efficient resupply and reinforcements. Japan's domination of air and sea also cut off rations, medicine, weapons, ammunition, and other equipment to the peninsula's defenders. To compensate, MacArthur ordered that the rations be cut in half. The 1942 report of operations of USAFI and US FIP drops that number to about a third, and some estimates drop that figure further to about a quarter. But even though rations were cut, some were still eating better than others. Private First Class James O. Faulkner reminisced about the, quote, tantalizing smell of frying bacon in the commanding general's cook tent to the unappetizing and unsalted mess kit of boiled rice he was repeatedly issued from one day to the next, unquote. On one occasion, PFC Faulkner drove a truck loaded with two tons of candy headed for the Navy commissary at Maryville's. On his way, he noticed Marines from his unit alongside the road. He pulled over, quietly told them what was in his truck, and then loudly said, quote, I'm going to get something to eat. I don't want to see you getting on my truck, unquote. The Marines understood what he meant, and the amount of candy Faulkner delivered was substantially less than what he started with. Alf R. Larson, a soldier with the U.S. Army, stated, quote, We were told to watch the monkeys. What they eat, you can eat. If we saw a monkey, that's what we ate. We ate the jungle, anything that moved, crawled, or grew, unquote. The decision to cut rations is heavily criticized. Morale was lowered, and men were exhausted by malnutrition and disease. By April 1942, many troops had lost as much as 30% of their body weight. As medical supplies ran out, malaria, dysentery, and other tropical diseases devastated U.S. troops. There were as many as 10,000 men confined to the two open-air jungle hospitals for wounds and illnesses. There were less than half of the remaining forces that were considered combat effective. 
Combat effective was defined at the time as a man who could walk 100 yards without staggering and still have enough strength to fire his weapon. That's how weak these men were. In the months leading up to the fall of Bataan, the U.S. and Philippine forces put up a hell of a fight against the enemy. Japan took the defenders' lack of food, supplies, and medicine into consideration when finalizing their strategy for the attack, and their eagerness to grasp victory clouded their judgment. Their intelligence did not thoroughly review the peninsula's terrain, and they underestimated the defensive strength by half. The lousy intelligence resulted in an overzealous attack by Homa. This was realized in Japan's 14th Army report when they concluded that they, quote, optimistically presumed that considering its position relative to Corregidor Island, the enemy would offer serious resistance at the southern end of the peninsula, with Marivals as a nucleus, withdrawing later to Corregidor Island. Taking this for granted, the threat of enemy resistance was taken lightly, unquote. However, Japan learned from its mistakes. With nothing but time on their hands, they reassessed the situation and organized another attack. There was little the defenders could do. With no food and supplies, they dug in and prepared for the inevitable. Thanks for listening. Our next episode will dig into part three of the defense of the Philippines. This week's audiobook is Never Finished, by David Goggins. I love me some Goggins. Every time I read his first book, Can't Hurt Me, I was super motivated after. So I was excited when I heard he had another book coming out. It did not disappoint. Never Finished is more insightful than his first book. I also think it's a lot darker. It's truly impressive how Goggins breaks down the dark times in his life and turns those hardships into relevant lessons. Not inspirational quotes, but meaningful lessons that can be applied to real-life situations. The audio version of this book is far better than the actual book. It's kind of like a podcast. After each chapter, he breaks down the story and it makes the book a little bit more personal. Visit audibletrial.com slash history for a free copy of this book and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, Check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.